You know, for Jesus' disciples and the crowd that day, Palm Sunday coming into the city with all that celebration felt like a crossing of the finish line. That's what that felt like for them. What they didn't realize is that this was just the beginning of the final stretch. That crowd that was there that day crying out, Hosanna, that crowd had been slowly building for the past three years. We've already come across the crowd in Mark. We've been journeying with Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, and we've seen the crowd that's beginning to form around Jesus. They saw Jesus as a miracle worker, a man of God. Some thought He was a prophet like John the Baptist. Others began to think of Him as the Messiah. But the Pharisees saw Jesus as a radical threat to their position and their power. And we've already seen in Mark's Gospel how Jesus keeps coming into conflict with these Pharisees, with the religious establishment. He challenged them and their interpretation of the Jewish law. He was touching unclean lepers and forgiving people of their sins and eating with known sinners and Roman collaborators and breaking their precious Sabbath rules and restrictions. All the way back in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, which we read last week, it says, Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. These plans had been in the works for a couple of years. Well, today, we're going to leave behind Mark. We're going to skip ahead a few years to the final hours of Jesus' earthly life. It was for these last few hours that Jesus came. He didn't just come to heal the sick and feed the hungry. He didn't just come to preach and to teach. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. He came to die for our sins, to pay the price that we owe, to suffer the guilt and the shame that belong to us, to endure the suffering that we deserve so that we might know the forgiveness and grace of God. Everything in Jesus' life and ministry, every message and every miracle, we're building up to this. All of history was moving toward this very moment. And so as we look this morning at Jesus' crucifixion, I want us to consider who was there that day? Who was there at the cross? You'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Beginning in verse 27, we see, first of all, the earthly powers were there. Earthly powers were there at the cross. Look with me at verse 27. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium, gathered the whole company of soldiers around Him. They stripped Him and put a scarlet robe on Him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and placed it on His head. They put a staff in His right hand and knelt in front of Him and mocked Him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on Him. Took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe, put his own clothes on him, and they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, 
They divided up his clothing by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. The Roman soldiers here represent the military might of the Roman Empire, one of the greatest military forces ever on the face of the earth. And crucifixions were routine for Roman soldiers. Crucifixion was a common means of capital punishment in the Roman Empire. Jesus and his disciples throughout their lives would have had many occasions to see men slowly dying on Roman crosses. Crucifixion was the cruelest, most humiliating and painful means of execution the Romans could come up with. It was extremely painful. In fact, our English word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. It was the most excruciating form of suffering for the executed person. They were often hung on the cross naked, so they experienced exposure to the elements, thirst, hunger. They could stay on that cross for days. Sleep deprivation, loss of blood. All of this contributed to the torment, but most men who died on a Roman cross actually died from asphyxiation. See, they had to push up with their feet in order to relieve the pressure on their lungs so they could take a breath. So with every breath, they had to push up and pull down on those nails in their wrists or their hands. So you could imagine after a while, especially someone like Jesus, who in addition to all of this had experienced a Roman flogging, which most people died from. Eventually they grow weak, they can no longer push up, and they are suffocated. In addition to the crucifixion, Jesus also experienced humiliation. Now, I don't know how often Romans would, would heap upon the already indignation and shame of a crucifixion, further humiliation and mockery, but because of the charge against Jesus, the Roman soldiers decided they'd have a little fun with him. So they put a royal purple robe onto his bloodied back and they put a crown of thorns and drug it into his head. And they took a staff and put it in his hand and they knelt and they mocked him as the king of the Jews. And then they took that staff and they beat upon that head that already had those thorns pressed into it. And then once Jesus was on the cross, they gambled for his garments right in front of him. If the soldiers represented the military might of Rome, Pilate represented the political power of Rome. Now, Pilate wasn't physically there at the cross, but he was in charge. Everything that happened at that cross happened at his command. It happened because he allowed it to happen. He was directly responsible for what was happening on Golgotha that day. In keeping with the Roman soldiers' mockery of Jesus as the king of the Jews, Pilate inscribed that on a plaque and put it over his cross in three different languages. Now, it was common for them to put above the person being executed the crime for which they were dying. That way, as people walked by and saw it, it was really an example for them. Don't commit this crime or this could happen to you. But Pilate had king of the Jews placed over Jesus' head, not so much to humiliate him, but to humiliate the Jewish leaders who kind of forced his hand to crucify Jesus. See, Pilate was frustrated at this situation. He didn't like the Jews, and they hated him even more. 
They did not get along. And the last thing Pilate needed was another revolt by the Jews on the, on the Passover festival. He didn't want word of this to get back to Caesar in Rome, so he felt like he was stuck between a rock and a hard place. And he compromised on his principles and his belief that Jesus was innocent, which is why Pilate said, I'll wash my hands of this. He didn't want to do this, but he did it. You know, not much has changed in 2,000 years. Earthly powers are still confused by, intimidated by, and feel threatened by Jesus. We see this in governments all around the world as they crack down on churches, as they try to ban Bibles, as they persecute Christians. Sadly, we're seeing more and more of this attitude arise in our own government. See, political power is threatened by kingdom principles. We see it not only in our government, we see it in our culture. Christians today, more and more, are mocked for our values and our beliefs, and then we're blamed for the very ills of society that we try to warn society about. Increasingly, Christians around the world, and even in this country, are being sued, punished, fired, jailed, canceled. Our culture is threatened by Jesus and what He represents. But Isaiah prophesied that the coming Messiah would have the government on His shoulders. And of the increase of His government, there would be no end. What Pilate was saying is that, I'm sorry, what Isaiah was saying is that someday the Messiah would come and He would govern the world. The burden of government would rest on His shoulders and His government would never end. It would only increase. Earthly governments will all come to an end. Guess what? Someday there will not be a United States government. Someday the halls of Congress will stand empty. Someday there will be nobody in that oval office because Jesus Christ will be on His throne. All earthly kingdoms come to an end. And the earthly powers know this. They know that their time is limited. But the kingdom of God is eternal. That's why Psalm 2 points out that the nations rage against the Lord and His anointed. And in Jerusalem that day, the nations raged. But you know what God did? He took their best efforts to destroy Him and His kingdom and He turned the tables on them. It's the greatest upset in history. They thought the powers of this world, the earthly authorities thought we've done it. We've killed God. We are now in control. We are now the ultimate power and authority. But listen to what Paul said in Colossians 2. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, Jesus made a public spectacle of them. They thought on the cross they were making a public spectacle of Jesus. Jesus was making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the very thing they thought they had won, the cross. The greatest upset in human history. The earthly powers were there. Secondly, the moral failures were there. Let's continue in verse 38. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And then look down at verse 44. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on them. So Jesus was mocked by the soldiers. He was mocked by the crowd. The people gathered around and passing in and out of Jerusalem. And even the thieves who were being crucified with Him 
who were suffering the same punishment, shame, that he was, even they were joining in the mockery. Now, I think it would be an understatement to say that something had gone terribly wrong in the lives of these two men, don't you think? For them to end up here on the cross? Have you ever thought about that? What, what events led them to this moment, to be a part of this divine drama? Now, I have to think that you know, these men had parents, right? And then their parents, I'm sure, had hopes and dreams for them that didn't include this. Maybe these men were married. Maybe they had wives and children somewhere. These men grew up in a Jewish synagogue. They had let their families down. They had betrayed their communities. They had disappointed the members of their local synagogues. These criminals. These lawbreakers. I mean, certainly at one point they had their own hopes and dreams. They never thought their lives would end here, like this, crucified at the hands of Rome. Maybe Jewish society and Roman power had worked hard to keep these men on the straight and narrow. But for whatever reason, they chose lives of crime. They decided to disregard the law, disregard human property rights, disregard human life. You know, Rome wasn't really in the business of crucifying petty criminals. These, men's, these men were more than petty thieves. They probably had killed people. They may even have been insurrectionists, and so Rome wanted to make an example out of them. Now, Matthew leaves this part of the story out, but from the other gospel accounts, we know that one of the thieves who was mocking Jesus at the beginning began to listen to Jesus, began to notice some things about how Jesus was responding to the crowds and the Roman executioners. He recognized there was something different about this man. He did not react the way that others reacted when they were crucified. He had a peace about him. He showed mercy and grace to his executioners and mockers. He prayed to God as his father and asked him to forgive these people. And that thief came to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God. And he asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, it was for criminals like these men that Jesus came to die. It was for sinners like you and me that Jesus came to die. Jesus came to meet troubled people, to meet wicked sinners, so He could change our hearts, forgive our sins, and give us life abundant and eternal. Psalm 14 tells us the truth about us that we don't like to live up to, we don't like to face up to. The truth of Psalm 14 says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there's any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. Not even one. Those thieves on the cross represent you and me as sinners. We don't like to think about this, but we deserve the excruciation that Jesus suffered because our deeds are corrupt and vile. God looks down on us. He looks down on the world today and He discovers that none of us are good. Not one of us. You think about the the best person you can think of. I don't think I could say the goodest person you can think of. But you think about that person who to you would be like, "That that is the salt of the earth person. God even looks at that person and sees the sin that's in their heart. 
We all deserve eternal punishment, death, and separation from God in hell. Listen to what Romans 5, 8 says. Despite all of that, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us sinners. Back in Mark 2.17, we've already read, Jesus told us the reason He came. He said, I've not come to call the righteous, of which there are none. He said, I've come to call sinners to repentance. Later in Mark 10.45, Jesus will say, For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. See, what the Pharisees and the religious leaders failed to understand is they were also sick and in need of the great physician's healing touch. They did not understand their own sin and need for a Savior. And the moral failures were there. But for most people who are moral failures, they know it. They understand the depravity of their heart. They know the crimes they've committed. They know that they stand guilty before God. But there's a third group that was there that didn't. The religious people. The religious people were there. Look at verses 41 through 43. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. I can't begin to imagine the heartache that God felt for His people Israel. You think all the way back to Abraham, when God called Abraham and said, from you I will make a mighty nation who will be my own possession in the earth, a kingdom of priests through whom I will bless all the world. And He was good to that promise. He delivered those people 400 years later from slavery in Egypt. He brought them through the wilderness and met every need they have. He brought them to a land flowing with milk and honey and gave it to them to be their own possession. He entered into a unique covenant relationship with them. He said, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. I will never leave or forsake you. And I will bless all the world through you. And he was good to his word. But despite all that God had done, his people rebelled against him. They sinned again and again and broke his heart. They failed to pass on the stories to their children. They began to be as corrupt and violent and vile as the wicked nations around them. They even began to worship false gods and idols. And even though God would discipline His people Israel time and again, He loved them and He never gave up on them. He sent them prophets to warn them of coming judgment and to call them back to faithfulness with Him. He raised up good kings who would try to lead them in religious restoration. And here they are now, with God in their midst, in flesh and blood. All those ancient prophecies of the Messiah are coming true right there. The very purpose for which Israel was created has come to fruition. The whole world will be blessed through Jesus. They were blind to it. They couldn't see it. Jesus even confronted them in John chapter 5 for their refusal to see. He said, you study the Scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very Scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me 
to have life. All of God's laws, the, all, all of the Old Testament was mo- meant to point people to their need for a Savior. It was meant to illustrate for them how wicked and sinful they were, how hopeless they were on their own. They needed someone to come from the outside to rescue them. They needed a sacrificial lamb who was pure and spotless to take away their sins. It was all meant to point them to Jesus, yet they had turned it into these rules that they were to keep so they could impress others. It was just all for show. So Jesus said in Matthew 23 to the Pharisees, He said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous. You put on a good show, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Like Rome, the religious establishment felt threatened by Jesus' message, by His miraculous powers, by what the crowds were saying about Him. The crowds liked what they saw and heard in Jesus. That made these religious leaders nervous. And so they plotted how they could kill Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees, the, the scribes and the priests, they were prime movers in what was happening that day on the cross. And they mistakenly thought that this was going to secure their position with Rome. Israel and Rome had a a tenuous relationship. And as I said, there were lots of revolts throughout Jewish history under Roman occupation. And so the Pharisees and Sadducees, they thought, you know what? If we offer up Jesus, if we say, hey, this man claims to be our king, but listen, we have no king but Caesar, maybe we'll earn favor with Rome. In 40 years, Rome would come and would destroy Jerusalem, would topple the temple and burn it to ruins and would scatter the Jewish people throughout the empire. And much as Jesus turned the tables on earthly powers through His death, He flipped the script on these religious leaders. You see, Jesus actually fulfilled the meaning of the law. He broke the power that it had to condemn us for our sin. No longer can the law stand in judgment of those who have faith in Christ. As Paul said, in Christ there is now no condemnation. No condemnation. Or as Paul wrote again in Colossians 2, he said, when you were dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, He has taken away, Jesus has taken away the law to which we were indebted because we had broken it. We were sinners. And Paul says he nailed it to the cross. We are no longer under the law, but under grace. Now, when we think about the Pharisees, we often consider them the bad guys, don't we? Right? And if you watch Jesus' movies, they're often, you know, scowling and they're all in black, you know. They might as well be twisting mustaches, you know. I mean, they, they are the bad guys in the story. And I think the reason we like to say that is because we don't like to face up to the fact that we can be very much like them, can't we? Maybe you're guilty of trying to earn your way into God's favor. Maybe you're guilty of putting on a good show when you come to church. Maybe you think that being a Christian is all about what you know. And what you do, it's not. 
It's about what Jesus Christ has already done for you. As Paul said in Romans 6, 14, For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law. You're under grace. But whenever we try to be good enough to earn God's favor, we're living under the law. When we try to put on a good front, we're slaves to sin. It is only by putting our faith and trust in Jesus and in what He does for us and His power to forgive us of our sins and transform our hearts from the inside out. It is only when we do that that we will find ourselves free to live under grace. The earthly powers were there. The moral failures were there. Good religious people were there. There's another group that was there. I want us to look back a few verses in the story to see that Jesus' cowardly friends were also there. Look back at chapter 26, beginning in verse 69. Now this is after the Lord's Supper, after the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus has prayed all night. Judas has come with armed soldiers and he has betrayed Jesus into their hands and Jesus has been taken away to the high priest's house to be tried. Peter followed from a distance and it says that now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus at Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. In other words, he talked like a Galilean. And then, they began to, then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the words Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. That Thursday night, all of Jesus' disciples abandoned him. They all ran away. Because one of their own had denied him, had betrayed him. Soldiers had come and arrested him. Of all the disciples, John is the only one that was actually at the cross that Friday. The rest of them were hiding throughout Jerusalem. But I think it's Peter's denial of his Lord that night that really makes us understand how rejected and alone Jesus must have felt on the cross. Peter was his right-hand man. He was the leader of the disciples, second in command, if you will. Peter had earlier declared that he would die before he would ever forsake Jesus. But Jesus warned him. He said, no, Peter, before the rooster crows twice tonight, you're going to deny me three times. And so Peter proved a coward. He followed at a distance. He sat and hid among the crowd as his master was mocked and tried and slapped and spit on. And when confronted about being one of his disciples, Peter denied him three times. When he realized what he had done, he went, went outside and wept. You know, I'm sure that Peter probably believed that he was responsible for everything that happened on Friday. Can you imagine the guilt? Can you imagine him blaming himself? He was supposed to protect Jesus. And now his Lord, his rabbi, his friend was being killed on a Roman cross. Peter probably believed that he was beyond hope and destined to eternal shame and punishment. But as we're going to look at next week, after Jesus' resurrection, 
He came to Peter and restored Peter to fellowship with him and to his place of leadership among the disciples. Peter, in fact, would go on to preach the first sermon on the birthday of the church at Pentecost. See, I think the reason we like Peter so much is he's relatable, isn't he? I don't know about you, I can see a lot of myself in Peter. Rash, impulsive, speaking before he thinks, always having to put his foot in his mouth. But his intentions were good. Peter had a heart of gold. He genuinely loved Jesus. Peter reflects so much what Jesus said to Peter, James, and John after they kept falling asleep that Thursday night in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus said, The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I feel that so much of the time. My Spirit, Lord, is willing, but my flesh can be so weak. And Jesus knows that. He knows that we're frail, weak. We're prone to setbacks and doubts and fears and Jesus has mercy on us, thankfully. Even when we're cowardly. Even when we fail to follow through on our promises, Jesus stands ready to forgive us. Micah 7.18 tells us, Who is a God like you who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of His inheritance? That means even of the faithful few, God stands ready to forgive us when we sin. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. As John who was at the cross that day, would later write in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all our unrighteousness. And not only does Jesus forgive our fear and our doubt and our weakness, He empowers us to overcome them. As Paul tells Timothy, for the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid. Rather, when we're timid, He gives us power, love, and self-discipline. It makes me feel comforted to know that Jesus' cowardly friends were there because oftentimes I feel like one of those cowardly friends. There's another group that wasn't cowardly. Another group there. The broken-hearted believers were there. Look at verses 55 and 56. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for His needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons, meaning James and John. Now, John's gospel tells us a little bit more about the faithful few at the cross. It says, near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved, which is John, John always referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, when he saw them standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son, and to the disciple, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. As a parent, as somebody who has friends that I care deeply about, I can't, still can't even imagine the grief and despair and the utter hopelessness that Mary must have felt that day. That John and the other women must have felt that day. To see their son, their friend their master being crucified by their Roman oppressors, to know that he was denied and abandoned by his friends that he trusted, to hear him being mocked by the crowds and even by those men of God that are supposed to be your spiritual leaders. I can't imagine the despair. But you know, we've all experienced moments of grief and despair in our life, haven't we? 
Maybe recently you've experienced hardship that has left you hurt and confused and wondering, where is God? Maybe you've experienced immense loss and grief in your life lately. Psalm 34, 18 tells us the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. So when your heart is broken, when you feel like your spirit is crushed, look to the cross. God's heart was broken that day. Jesus was crushed on the cross that day. He knows how you feel. He understands what you're going through. He is close to you in those dark nights of the soul. As Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53, Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on Him. And by His wounds we are healed. Jesus was crushed so that you and I could be made whole. He was wounded so that we could be healed. Jesus bore not only our sins on the cross, but our sufferings as well. He died so He could take your tears and give you back joy. As Paul so beautifully writes in 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly, We're renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes on what is, not not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There was one person at the cross that day we've not mentioned who saw the unseen to whom was revealed the eternal truth about who Jesus was and is. So I want to conclude by looking at the confession of a bystander who saw it all. Look with me at verses, beginning in verse 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. And the rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection went into the holy city and appeared to many people. That's some pretty spectacular events. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake... And all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely He was the Son of God. The Roman centurion, like that one thief, was paying attention to these events. And he came to believe Jesus was the Son of God. That's remarkable. This man was a seasoned war veteran. He had fought campaigns. He had seen and been a part of countless crucifixions because he was a centurion. He was in charge of a hundred men. He was used to seeing how men die. 
He knew that when men faced violent, painful deaths, he knew how they reacted. Not this man. This man was different. This death was unlike any crucifixion he had ever seen. He looked up and he saw what was inscribed over Jesus' head, the King of the Jews. He listened to what those mocking him were saying. He said he's the Son of God. He claimed to forgive people of their sins. He, he supposedly raised the dead. He said he could tear down this temple and build it back in three days. He's listening to all of this. He's listening to what Jesus is saying. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. It is finished. He considered all that he had observed. And he came to this conclusion. Jesus was the Son of God. His example is a good example for us to follow. I challenge you, read the Gospels. We've been reading the Gospel of Mark this Lent season. You could sit down probably in an hour and read the Gospel of Mark. Join us on Sundays after Easter as we continue to walk through Mark's Gospel. Look at Jesus. Listen to Jesus and believe that He is who He said He is, the Christ, the Son of God, who came to save us from our sins. See yourself at the cross. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, you were there. I was there. We were on Jesus' heart and mind as He died on that cross. It was for your sin and mine that Jesus hung there and bled. You were there. Maybe you were there as a part of the worldly positions of power that feel threatened by the upside-down nature of God's kingdom. Maybe you were there by your moral failures. You may think, David, I've done too much. I'm too far gone. God could never accept me. You're wrong. Jesus bled and died for you. He stands ready to forgive you no matter what you've done. Maybe you're on the opposite end of this. Maybe you think, well, you know, I'm not a moral failure. I'm a good person. I I work hard to be. I'm a law-abiding citizen. I go to church. I pay my taxes begrudgingly, but I pay them. And, and, you know, I try to keep to the speed limit. And I'm generous and I help people. I'm generally a good person. Maybe you are there as one of those religious people who thinks that it's all about you and what you know and what you can do. But, you know, I think deep down in your heart, you have to admit you're not perfect. You mess up. You have unkind thoughts about people. You can be selfish. You sometimes tell a white lie. You know that you're putting on a good show. But inside, there's wickedness. Jesus died for you too. Jesus loves you. See, Jesus wants more than religious people. He wants righteous people. You and I can be religious on our own. Hell, we can be good religious people on our own. But what you and I can never be on our own is righteous people. It is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we can be made righteous. Maybe you're there like Peter, a cowardly Christian. You love Jesus. You believe in Jesus. You've given your life to Jesus, but you know that you mess up a lot. You know that sometimes you don't speak up when you should. You know that sometimes you fail to share the gospel with someone you know is lost. And today you just want and need Jesus to restore to you the joy of your salvation. You need it to be fresh and new in your heart. Jesus wants to restore you. Maybe you were there 
in the broken hearts, grief and despair of Mary and John and the others. And today you need Jesus to heal your wounds. To take what is broken in your heart and make it whole again. No matter how you approach the cross today, no matter which of those people you resonate with today, I hope and pray that you'll come like that Roman centurion in faith and trust that Jesus is the Son of God, that He has the power to save you from your sins, to make all that is wrong in your life right again, to give you meaning and hope and purpose and joy because He died, He was buried, He rose again, and He's coming back again someday. Paul says in Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, for it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess and are saved. If you've never done that, if you have never done what that centurion did in faith and trust, the faith of a child, you don't have to understand it all, you don't have to be able to explain it all, but just to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I believe you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave, and I want you to come into my life and forgive me of my sins and help make me new. I invite you to come right now and do that today. What better thing could you ever do on Palm Sunday than to not just say, Hosanna, rescue us, but to fall down at the feet of the rescuer and say, rescue me. Save me today, Jesus, from my sins. I would love nothing more than to meet you here in a moment and help you do just that. But maybe that's not your need today. Maybe you're more like Peter. Maybe you're more like Mary and John. Maybe you're more like those moral failures who think you're too far gone. This altar stands open for you to come and to pray for you to come and make whatever decision the Spirit of God has laid on your heart. Listen, Jesus stepped out of heaven and hung on that cross for you. Can you step out of this pew and come down here and make a decision for Jesus today? If you need to, I pray you will. Let's stand together. Father, thank You. Lord, for this story that is, that is brutal, this story that is heartbreaking, but this story is a story of rescue. It's a story of salvation. It's the story of a prince leaving his kingdom to come and fight for the ones that he loves. It's a story of a man who gave it all away for people who rejected him and denied him and hung him on a cross. Father, if there's anyone in this room today that feels like they're broken, that feels like they're a failure, that feels like they're a coward. Or maybe they thought they've got too much at risk, they've got too much power, too much position, and they're afraid to let go of it and trust in You. Father, I pray Your Spirit would speak to their hearts and bring them now to come and respond to the One who loved us enough to die on Calvary's tree. It's in His name we pray. Amen.